I was a, a teenager and in the, the independent Baptist um, movement as a whole, and not strictly limited to the independent Baptist movement, but there was a lot of, um, a lot of mystery uh, emphasized around the will of God, um, knowing what God's will is for your life. I think in, in some places it was definitely, I said, I don't, don't get me wrong, it was overemphasized. I think it was, it was misemphasized in that the will of God often became this elusive, mysterious thing that no one could quite ever attain. Uh, and some people uh, would believe what the will of God was for their life based on not much more than a whim or some emotional feeling they had. But I think in sometimes the pendulum swing that can happen, we can often lose sight of the will of God and not place the emphasis that we ought to on what God's will is for us as believers. I remember hearing at a, um, a Christian camp that I went to, um, I think it may have even been this, this specific verse, uh, but the, the preacher that was preaching um, asked all, all the, stu- the kids at the beginning of the, that sermon, he said, how many of you want to know what God's will is for your life? And of course, everyone just raised their hand. And he, he said, I know what God's will is for you. And we're like, oh, okay. Uh, and he said, look at, I'm not sure if it was this verse or a different verse that read the same way. He said, this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Scripture does often highlight what it is that God wants for us and what, we, what he wants us to do, how we ought to live our lives. Scripture is very clear. And Paul here gives us just a part of God's will for us. Uh, this is not all-encompassing. This isn't the end-all, be-all. This isn't the only thing that God requires of us. However, this is the will of God for us, that we ought to rejoice, that we ought to pray without ceasing, that we ought to give thanks in all circumstances. You may ask, well, why is it God's will that all three of these things, it only says it in verse 18, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Um, I tend to believe that, that when Paul was summarizing, I believe this is a summary statement here, and that what he's referring to is all three things that came prior. There's a couple reasons that I, that I believe that. Um, the, first, the first reason is this. Um, the text does not specifically um, bar that, I guess, interpretation um, specifically. Um, here he says, um, this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. The way that grammatically this is written is that this, for this is the will of God, could, could refer to the first or the last um, command, give thanks in all circumstances, but it, it's not strictly limiting uh, inclusion of the other two things, rejoicing always and pray without ceasing. Uh, another reason why I think that these three things ought to be considered as kind of a, a unity um, is that these three things are often found together in the same part. They're often mentioned very closely in a, in a very Pauline way of, of mentioning these things, specifically when we come to uh, Philippians chapter 4. Um, Paul includes these things within two or three verses of one another. Rejoice in the Lord always, and I say, again I say rejoice. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with 
thanksgiving. Let your request be made known to God. So here we have these three things, joy or rejoicing, prayer and thanksgiving, mentioned in a separate epistle, not the epistle of Philippians, but mentioned to a different church, the church at Thessalonica. Going back to what I was saying before about the, this not being the, the whole of what it is God wants us to do, um, I think the fact that he mentions that this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you, um, the fact that it, it includes not just the last one, I think it's, it's very telling as well. Um, Paul, in a previous verse in Philippians chapter 4, or First Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16, I believe it is, um, I may be wrong on that, that text, but what, what Scripture says is that um, this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality. These are not inclusive statements, as we said before. There are other things that God has for us and that God has commanded for us to do that we would say is unquestionably his will for us. So we see, in addition, that joy and prayer and thanksgiving ought to be a part of the will of God, or they are a part of the will of God, and they ought to be present in our lives as well. Um, the, last, the last reason why I think this is a, a logical way to in, interpret this is, um, and this cer- certainly ought not to be the, the way that we um, come to our interpretation of Scripture, but um, in reading several um, scholars on this, on this passage as well, many of them considered it to be a kind of a triad of commands that are to be taken together as the will of God for us and not strictly the giving of thanks alone. So what it is, what, it, what is it that Paul says is the will of God? This is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. What is the will of God for us from this passage? Number one, that we are to rejoice always. Rejoice always. You may think it's strange coming from the Apostle Paul who endured such suffering, such persecution, such uh, physical and emotional, mental strain and tolls on him as an apostle. You may think it's strange to find someone who is under such persecution and, and um, stress from all sides that he would mention joy as something that's so integral to the Christian life, but Paul repeatedly emphasizes the, the importance of rejoicing. This was characteristic of Paul. Um, In the life of the Apostle Paul, we see affliction and joy often going together hand in hand. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, we see him writing to the church at Corinth. He says, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. As poor, yet making many rich. As having nothing, yet possessing everything. Here are these two seemingly diametrically opposed characteristics and should be present in the Christian life. Both suffering and joy, both sorrow and rejoicing in the Lord. Second Corinthians chapter 12 as well, he says, For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. I'm content with them. For when I am weak, then I am strong. We can often see Paul rejoicing in his sufferings, not only saying that he's rejoicing. And there is a big difference, isn't there? It's one thing to say, yeah, I'm rejoicing, and then to be complaining the entire rest of the time, apart from that singular sentence where you say you're rejoicing. But Paul often stated his joy in suffering. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 24, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. 
And in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. In Acts chapter 5, we see instances. He says, Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Acts chapter 16 and verse 25, we see Paul and Silas in prison after being beaten. And it says, About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, rejoicing, praising the Lord. And it says the prisoners were listening to them. Also, Romans chapter 5, verses 3 through 5, Paul says, Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Here, Paul encourages the Thessalonians to rejoice along with him, to praise the Lord and rejoice, notice, always, regardless of the circumstance, regardless of the secondary factors or tertiary factors that may be present in their life, but to always be rejoicing. But Paul was not just writing to a church that had never endured suffering. In fact, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse number 6 says that the church at Thessalonica was one that was founded in the midst of much affliction and suffering. Here he says, And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit. And we can see what affliction that was in the Acts chapter 16. If you'd like to turn there, uh, you may. Acts chapter um, 17, pardon me. We see the founding of the church at Thessalonica. In verse number one and following, we see Paul and Silas coming to Thessalonica, and it says, Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did many a great of... Pardon me, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were moved with, or were jealous, were moved with envy. Here I'm quoting the King James, sorry. And taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, setting the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. Amen. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. We see in the very next verse, Paul and Silas escaping away to Berea by night for fear of the crowd. So this church at Thessalonica was not one that was um, immune to suffering or one that was not even familiar with suffering. Here, this church suffered much affliction in even its uh, very early stages. And here, Paul is commanding them, rejoice always.
We haven't experienced suffering like that church did in Thessalonica. We surely have not experienced any suffering um, consistent with what the Apostle Paul suffered with his shipwrecks and beatings. So why is it so difficult sometimes for us to rejoice? Here, the Lord says, this is the will of God for you. Rejoice always. When we take a minute to consider our lives, um, the joys of being a Christian are immense, endless, and deep. There are many things to be joyful about as believers. But Paul doesn't only give them a command to rejoice. He, I believe he also gives them the means whereby we are to rejoice. Notice, secondly, he says rejoice always, but he also says pray without ceasing. As believers, we can be joyful and have true joy because we have a God that cares about us a God that loves us. We have a heavenly father. We are, have been adopted into his family. He is now our father. We are now his children. And we have a God that commands us to call out to him and to pray. Secondly, he says, pray without ceasing. When I was a, a kid, and I'm sure all of us have heard something similar when this topic was, or when this, when this passage was um, preached on is, Pray without ceasing obviously does not mean you're to be mouthing a prayer 24 hours a day, seven days a week, but you're always to be in a state of continual prayer. And when I was a kid, I heard that, and I had absolutely no idea what it meant. Zero idea what it meant. And um, I, I thought it meant being like in a, a state of euphoria, you know, being in a state of prayer. You know, it's the same thing, or a state of confusion. It's similar. Um, but um, here we, we find some elucidation on, on what, it, what it actually means to be uh, praying without ceasing. Albert Barnes um, speaks of this command to pray without ceasing in two specific and different ways. And it's very interesting because when he talked about the first way that I'll mention in just a moment, I completely forgot about it because I was so focused on the be continually in a state of prayer that I often forgot the command that we have to pray in other contexts. Um, first of all, uh, he says, we, first off, we are to be consistent in our duty to pray personally, with our family, and with the community of believers that we are a member, that we are members together with. And when I, when I just read that very simply, I said, well, of course. We're to follow the instructions that we have to pray, to call out to the Lord, to actually pray, not just to be in a continual state of prayer, but we are to pray without ceasing, being consistent and not neglecting our duty to pray personally or with our family during family worship or with our church collectively as a group as we did this past week. We are to be consistent and never neglect our duties to pray. But he said also we are to be continually in a state of prayer. And this is where I was confused. What does it mean? And an Anglican minister by the name of uh, J.B. Lightfoot said this, It is not in the moving of the lips, but in the elevation of the heart to God, that the essence of prayer consists. I'll read that again. It is not in the moving of the lips, 
or in the saying of the prayer itself, but in the elevation of the heart to God that the essence of prayer consists. Calvin said this, he said, we are to be in such a frame of mind as to be ready to pray publicly if requested, and when alone, to improve any moment of leisure which we may have when we feel ourselves strongly inclined to pray. That Christian is in a bad state of mind who has suffered himself by attention to worldly cares or by light conversation or by gaiety and vanity or by reading an improper book or by eating or drinking too much or by late hours at night among the thoughtless and the vain to be brought into such a condition that he cannot engage in prayer with proper feelings. There has been evil done to the soul if it be not prepared for communion with God at all times and if it would not find pleasure in approaching his holy throne. In reading that, I, I thought that really brought clarity and more explanation to what it means to be in a continual state of prayer. Being ready at, the, at a moment's notice to call upon the Lord without harboring sin in our heart, without holding grudges against others. All of those things that Christ said, when you come to pray, and there you realize that you have ought against your brother. What do he say? Leave your gift and go your way. Be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Keeping a short account of sin with the Lord. Maintaining right relationships with our brother or sister in Christ, with our spouse, with our children. And being ready, having a pure heart to come into the presence of God at any moment and frequently throughout the day. There was a, a, a preacher by the name of uh, Hyman Appleman, and he was known to be a man of prayer. And if you went and talked to him about anything, or if you brought up any subject, or, hey, I've got this going on or that going on, uh, he was always known to stop right there and said, let's pray about that. And one person recounts uh, talking to him one time, and he said, let's pray about that. And he bowed his head and he said, he said, Lord, it's Hyman again. And when I heard that, um, that was many years ago, when I heard it, I'm like, wow. Having such a, a close relationship with the Lord that it's, it's almost as if you're talking to your best friend in conversation, coming before the presence of God and being ready to come before his presence. That's what it means to pray without ceasing. But this only comes about when a believer has made prayer a habit of life, just as habitual as getting up in the morning or brushing your teeth or getting ready for work. Prayer ought to be habitual each and every day and frequently throughout the day, and it takes perseverance. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 18, Paul says, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. What was the exhortation that Christ gave his disciples when he was going into the garden to pray? Watch ye and pray, lest you enter into temptation. When he came back, he said, watch and pray. Too many times, I must confess, I find myself doing what the disciples did instead of doing what the Lord told them to do. Being lax in my prayer life, not being vigilant 
and alert and sober about my prayer life. So he says, pray without ceasing. Rejoice evermore, pray without ceasing. And lastly, he says, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Give thanks in all circumstances. I, it's it's a, the conundrum that we have in the Christian life is, is very interesting. Many times, and this come, uh, comes with prayer as well, many times we fail to pray unless we have some type of urgency. Isn't that correct? We fail to pray unless there's someone sick in our house or we have an issue at work or something comes up and we are often finding ourselves in this emergency to come before the Lord and to pray. However, when things are going well, Many times we fail to pray. The same thing happens with thanksgiving. Sometimes that we fail to give thanks for what God has done for us until we are in a circumstance where we find ourselves kind of in an emergency and then we're praying about it and we're like, oh, well, yeah, well, God did that for me. And then we thank you, Lord, for what you've done. But many times we let our circumstances dictate whether we are going to be thankful or not. If something's going wrong, well, certainly I'm not going to be thankful in this circumstance. I'm not going to be joyful in this circumstance. But here, as we said before, these things, the joy and the prayer and giving thanks are to be taken not separately, but together. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. Uh, John Calvin said, when speaking of thanksgiving in the context of prayer, I think it was on um, Philippians, he said, uh, thanksgiving, as I have said, is added as a limitation. For many pray in such a manner as at the same time to murmur against God and to fret themselves if he does not immediately gratify their wishes. But on the contrary, it is befitting that our desires should be restrained in such a manner, that contented with what he has given us, we always mingle thanksgiving with our desires. We may lawfully, it is true, ask, nay, sigh and lament before God, but it must be in such a way that the will of God is more acceptable to us than our own will. As we bring our cares and petitions to the Lord, we must bring them to him knowing and being assured in our heart that his will is what is best for us and not our own. Calvin says, this is why we ought to give thanks when we pray. So it is a limitation that we might not murmur against God. He says, in every situation, in all circumstances, give thanks. In closing, I want to... I, I, the most thankful person that I've ever met before in my entire life was my grandfather. Um, and he was, I, he was a man of prayer, and he was a man that gave thanks all the time and in every circumstance. Uh, when we sat down for Thanksgiving, um, every year, what if we were with him for Thanksgiving, he would make all of us go around the table, and it was all of our cousins and uncles and aunts and everyone together, and, and give like 10 things we were thankful for. Not just one. <laughs> like 10 things. Um, and it was not uncommon for him if you were sitting with him, talking with him, um, and conversing, and there was a dead space, 
um, he would say, well, what do you thank the Lord for? Give me 25 things you thank the Lord for. Um, and at the time, it was very irritating. <laughs> Especially at Thanksgiving dinner when all the food is prepared and 25 people have to give 10 things apiece that they thank the Lord for. And we often um, helped ourselves to a cold turkey or um, other things. But um, one thing that happened with my grandfather, uh, just really, it was very convicting. Um, in November of 1996, my grandfather and grandmother were in a car accident. They were pulling out from a, a grocery store, headed home, and it was just at dusk where you couldn't quite see what you need to see. And uh, there was a, a car coming without their lights on. And my grandfather didn't see him. He pulled out, um, and that car hit, T-boned my grandparents, hit impacted on the side my grandfather was on, and, and um, he ended up in the ICU with many broken bones and all of the lines and all of the things that we do in ICU. Um, and my grandmother was killed. Um, so I remember the day that we got that call, I remember running into the house. I just got a new football. I was just astounded, just overjoyed about that football. I don't know why. Um, and my, my dad, um, I walked into the house, and my dad was crying, and he looked at me, and he said, your grandma Knickerbocker died. And so immediately we packed up, and we drove on down to Florida, and we went to see my grandfather at Tampa General Hospital. And my, my dad was there. All of his brothers were there. And they went into the hospital room to see my grandfather, who was awake and talking, thankfully. Um, but he looked at all of them, and they were all gathered around his bed, and he said, well, boys, what do you thank the Lord for? And even in the, the most terrible of circumstances, <laughs> I can't say I would have done the same thing if, if it were my wife that I had lost. But even in the, the midst of that crisis and tragedy in his life, he said, we need to be thankful to God. And um, I'm sorry, I am. I've had a long week. I'm <laughs> kind of an emotional wreck, but God is so good to us, folks. So good. And uh, you want to know what the, what the will of God is? That was it. Rejoice evermore. Why can, we, why can we rejoice? Because God has done so much for us. He is so good. He hasn't dealt with us according to our sins or our iniquities, but he's been gracious and merciful. We can have true joy stemming from that alone. We need to pray because we have a loving Father who tells us to cast our cares upon Him, to bring our requests with thanksgiving before Him, and He will answer. And lastly, we need to give thanks because God is sovereign, God is in control, and there is nothing that creeps up on God. He oversees everything, and for that reason, we can be thankful in all circumstances, knowing that He is working everything for our good and for his glory. So let us, uh, let us do those three things, amen? May God help us with that. Let's pray. Our Father, we, we are so inadequate, Lord. We are so needy. We are, as, uh, as the parable goes, we are not worthy to be called your sons and daughters. But through Christ, we are made worthy by his merits and Lord, we thank you. We thank you for your son and for the righteousness that we have in him. 
nothing of our own, not by our own merit, but through the merits of Christ. We ask that you would help us to have true joy, that fruit of the Spirit that you give. Work that within us, we pray. May we be diligent in praying and calling out to you each and every hour of the day. And Lord, may we do it with a thankful heart, knowing that you are in control and that you are working all things for our good. We ask all these things in Christ's name.